Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. This is a wrestling podcast that mostly focuses on wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And today we're going to be reviewing SummerSlam 1988 from 35 years ago. Uh, but first I want to remind everybody you want to join our Facebook group. Uh, we took questions from our Facebook group people. So um, you could have been part of that if you were part of the Facebook group. You also want to follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam. Follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo in his avatar, and you are golden. Before I get rolling on this week's show, I have to talk a little bit about last week's show. Um, very polarizing show. Some people liked it. Some people said they couldn't get through it. If you missed it, we had a audio from a Morton Downey Jr. show from 1988. The Downey show was a real, like, crazy right-wing Thing that they had in the 80s and Dr. D. David Schultz made some of our uh, listeners uncomfortable with his rancor. And I told I said before the show started, I was like, you know, I watched it not the night before, but the night, the night before that that we recorded. And I was like, oh, man, I can't use this. But the guest was ready to go two days later. And Thomas Bain did a great job. And I didn't want to change the plan last minute. So from now on, I will learn from this experience that if we're going to do a show from, you know, way back, I will watch the show first to make sure it is appropriate and entertaining and all that good stuff. And I kind of blew it last week. I apologize to everybody. But with that, we are going to talk SummerSlam 1988 with my good friend, Sean Heimberger. Sean, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good, John. I'm good. So, yeah, uh, SummerSlam 1988, August 29th at Madison Square Garden, drew a $350,000 house, drew a lot of money on pay-per-view. The first match, the opener, was the British Bulldogs against Jacques and Raymond Rougeau. I personally think the Rougeaus were fantastic as heels, Sean. I really liked them. To this day, my wife, of all people, can sing the the lyrics to all American boys. I mean, it just all rolled America. off the tongue. Awesome. That's that stuff was great. And they just had, I don't know what the problem was with them, but they would have had a, a really good heel run. I think as champions, you could have put the belt on them and they would have been just as good as if not better than anybody else that I love the Rougeau brothers. Raymond yeah. Jacques Rougeau has that carry about him. It's like, everybody looks at a guy like him and says, I know that guy in real life. And I really hate that guy. Supposedly, he doesn't even have to say anything. Yeah, supposedly that's what Jock is like in real life, too. He, <laughs> Jim Cornette has the funniest Jock Rougeau stories. If he hasn't shared them on the experience, he needs to. He has so many great Jock stories. from They were in uh, Memphis together in 1982. But, yeah, they weren't the typical, like, cocky heels or, you know, angry, menacing heels. They were so insincere about everything. They came, and that's really almost like the anti-WWF, who was always feeding you how to think, and you had to really, you know, detail things with them. It's like, okay, are these guys, they're saying nice things, but they're really not real. And, and then, like, Gorilla Monsoon during the show, to, oh, look at the size of those flags. It's, it's like, 
I, I, it was an interesting way to do things for a, a company that didn't always do things that were very interesting, as this show would prove later on. To, to say that or, and this show and as SummerSlams went on, I, I a lot of people liked this match, Sean. I, I thought it was okay, and I understood what they were doing, but I thought the, I thought the match went on way too long. I, I thought it was okay. It's like uh, what was Kevin Sullivan used to always say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And on this sh- card, it stood out. On a regular card, it would have been okay. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, It's ironic that they had this match considering what was about to go down between Dynamite Kid and Jacques Rougeau. For those who don't know, uh, I mean, this is Dynamite Kid's side of the story, and it's it's pretty well documented. Not long after this show, Jacques Rougeau uh, took a roll of quarters and sucker punched Dynamite. That's the story that I've heard. And supposedly Raymond Rougeau was like a pretty salty guy, like a former amateur boxer in Montreal. And But yet you don't hear those tough guy stories about Jacques, which kind of makes him meet on the platter of a guy like Dynamite Kid. So that's the only way he would probably be able to do anything about him. I mean, Dynamite Kid had a – I mean, in 1988, he had a – both he and Davy Boy had a legit tough guy reputations. And, I mean, I know Dynamite – kind of in his book tore Davey I knew you know what more than once but I mean both the Bulldogs had reputations as guys you did not want to mess around with in a real fight that's the reputation Uh, but you know how in in wrestling you wonder sometimes what is the real story and what is the inflated reputation because in a business that's filled with legitimate tough guys sometimes those reputations turn out to be not quite what they were reputed to be so who it's it's easy to be a tough guy when you get to be the bully it's not so easy to be the tough guy when you're not the bully and a guy like dynamite kid was always looked at as a legitimate tough guy and everywhere he went he was allowed to do those things and just like in real life if sooner or later somebody's got your number nobody's undefeated forever no, you're right. Father Time remains undefeated, and we would have never guessed it would have been Jacques Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau. Yeah, who you know, was the guy who finally clipped uh, Dynamite, and supposedly and, that's what Dynamite left the left the company because they didn't do anything about it. And it's like, Dynamite, think about all the stuff you've pulled over the years, man. What's, yeah, what's really interesting is, is in a, in a uh, business like wrestling, he lost his reputation because he was hit with a foreign object. <laughs> Very true. All right, now we go to footage of Brutus Beefcake uh, getting injured the Saturday before by Ron Bass. Uh, Di- Brutus Beefcake was supposed to wrestle Honky Tonk Man for the Intercontinental Championship, but they scratched that. Now they're, we're going to have a mystery partner. I mean, did you see the attack? When I watched it last night in uh, the, the Ron Bass with – Slashing with the spurs, was it that he? Yes, he opened up beefcake with... up, and yeah, that was. I, I I saw it in between fast forwards, which you told me I could do. I I told you you could do that definitely. <laughs> and by the way, Sean, I want to thank you. You kind of uh, took this on last minute. I, I really appreciate it. And and Steve Generelli will be back next week unless something else happens. Uh, it, it, it's always a pleasure to be here, John, and. But SummerSlam was <laughs> – we'll, we'll cover that. I, I watched that. I, I'm going like, 
this is two hours plus of my life I'm never going to get back. And I thought even more, 35 years later, I thought, and I actually paid to watch this the first time. Same here. Same it's here. Like, I, I, felt, I was like, God, this is awful. You know, let's take a little detour for a moment. Um <laughs> This, I mean, wrestling really was changing in 1988. I think there were four pay-per-views total in 1987, and that includes Starcade. Excuse me, I think there were two total in 1987, including, uh, not including Starcade, which no one had access to. Now, this is the fourth one of 1988, and there's going to be six total. And it's like anything else, the more you have of something, the less special it becomes. And this show really didn't feel terribly special. No, it, it felt like, just as you said, it was a, he want, Vince wanted to get to the point where he had, at that time, four pay-per-views scattered across the year. And it was like you had an event without something to carry the event. And it came across kind of forced. It, and, and you were, it wasn't, you didn't have a match that made sense to do it. Like, we're gonna, just going to shove a whole bunch of, angles together and mishmash something in there because we have the pay-per-view time and that's how it felt it it felt haphazard yeah it was a really well-promoted main event you had the you know the intercontinental championship thing which didn't seem like a big deal coming in and the rest of it it was like watching just another house show and if you lived in new york or around new york if you lived in los angeles philadelphia or boston you got to see the local house shows, you know, a couple of days tape delay, but you got to see them. And it felt like I was watching one of those with a, a really well hyped up main event. Yeah, I would, I would agree with it. And if you didn't live in those areas, it felt like more like a maybe hair better than usual primetime wrestling. Took the words right out of my mouth. I had that in my notes. Uh, it looked like, you know, a, a, a really good main event and then like a, a better than usual primetime wrestling. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking now, you know, the WWF is having three pay-per-views a year. Uh, so is JCP. And 10 years later, there was literally a pay-per-view on almost every Sunday night. But we're, we're not quite there yet. Right. And the technology is changing but it's not necessarily perfected that they could do it all the time. And the, the satellite companies that controlled the pay-per-views, they had to deal with them. And there's only at that time, there was only so many times that you could get up on the, on the satellite. So, but that day's coming. It's getting more and more where you said at this, at this time it's four. And within a couple of years, it's yeah six and then it becomes eight. And, I don't know if they were ready for four as far at this particular time to put on four compelling programs, but we didn't know any better. We was wrestling is on and, and we're going to pay for it no matter what. And at least yeah. I, mean, I, I look back at some of this and go, I actually paid for some of this stuff. Like what a dumb, oh, same here. How dumb am I? How dumb am I? But, and I remember too, in 1988, there were people who were complaining about there were too many pay-per-views and where where am I going to get all this money to pay for this? And I was always like, I used to go to the Boston Garden with my friends. The tickets were $12 each. This is like, you know, early 80s money. You had to drive there, so there's gas. You had to pay for parking, et cetera. And once you went in the building, you're certainly going to buy something. And now you're paying a fraction of that, and you don't even have to leave the house. But people weren't looking at it that way. 
Right, right. And and but it was at that time it was still a new technology and a lot of people if you lived in some places you were still having to go to the cable company and lug a box back to your house which meant you had to return it. And and as the technology got better, when you once you didn't have to go to that hassle is when I don't think people grumbled quite so much. But I, I know several times that you would have to get the actual box and lug it to your ha- lug it to your house and then return it and that's an extra hassle. And it's like anything else in life, John. If if you make things easy for people, they will buy more. The harder you make it for them to receive it, the more likely they are to find a reason that they won't pay pay for it. I mean, I look back and, you know, 35 years ago, I actually had to pick up the phone and call the cable company and order it. Now it's like you press a button and it's yours. I mean, Amazon has this down to a T. Right, right. And, you know, and, and look at how well they do. They're doing when, when you, the, ease, the easier you make anything, the more likely you are to do well. Yeah, Nothing I mean, convoluted. I, I ordered for something from Amazon yesterday, and it's like, hey, do you need any more of this other stuff you bought recently? It's like, oh, man, these guys got it down. So anyway, the next match, Bad News Brown pins Ken Patera in 633. Um, not a good match at all. Ken Patera returned the year before. He got a huge push, a lot of TV time. There were rumors that WrestleMania 4 was going to be Hulk Hogan against a heel, turned heel Kempatera, and that didn't happen. I don't think that was ever going to happen because, quite frankly, Patera looked too old. Uh, nobody's a bigger Ken Patera fan than me. And uh, I watched this, and I was wincing the whole time. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, he looks so – he had like the poofy hair that he had in the 70s run with with Lou Albano as the manager, which looked really bad with the dark hair. <laughs> and he you could tell that his he's a he's at least a step or two slow. The the his punches and forearms don't look good. And you could tell that he was definitely at the end of the line. It was kinda like watching the the sad heavyweight boxer that's taken too many punches but yet he keeps fighting on because he needs the money. Yeah. And, yeah, but, you know, Bad News Brown wasn't great, but in this match, it's like if you maybe he wasn't the guy to put against Patera at this stage of his career. But then again, I also don't know who they could have put against Patera at this stage of his career. Like, I remember, like, you've always talked about how you were, bought the after magazines, and so did I. And when he first came back, that was all over the place that it was going to be Hogan against a heel Ken Patera. And they did an article. And you would probably know more than I that supposedly they taped a Saturday night's main event that Patera was like a big part of. And then he did like the Hulkster pose down thing. And they were showing pictures of it in one of the after magazines and somebody at the WWF. I don't even think it hit TV that they had already decided that this was not going to be the avenue they went. They had Patera teaming with Hogan against Heenan's guys in some major arenas. So that's probably where that picture came from. But yeah, Patera, I mean, he just, he just looked, didn't look the part compared to the rest of the company. And he, along with a lot of the wrestlers on this card, would soon be part of a purge. A lot of the guys go in the fall of 1988 and I mean, that's just the way it is. Look, the WWF is bringing new guys in constantly, like Bad News Brown. He had started recently, and you know they're only running so many shows, and at at some point, guys are going to be let go, and this is Patera's last major match in the WWF ever, and he's usually being fed to Bad News Brown. 
Well, that that's and that's the the uh, long lasting rule of the wrestling business. On your way out, get one last little drop of mileage out of you by losing to somebody that you're giving more push behind. And you know it, it's understandable. And you could see that he was he was he was a cooked he was a cooked product at that point. And after this, uh, I think the only stuff you saw him on was some of the weird AWA stuff when he was like doing like car lifting challenges and like w- the really weird. Uh, AWA stuff. I don't think I saw him anywhere else after this. No, I, I can't remember that either. I know WCW actually made a play for him in 1989, as they did with just about everyone who got was part of that purge, but that never happened. Rick Rude is in the next match over Junkyard Dog. Uh, I mean, we talk about Ken Patera being at the end of the line. Junkyard Dog looked like he should have been at the end of the line. I mean, he was he was toast. He was out of gas really early in this match, as he tended to be in all of his matches at this point. And, you know, the match, it was a nothing match that ends with Rick Rude pulling down his trunks to reveal another pair of trunks with Cheryl Roberts, Jake Roberts' wife, on both the front and the back, which brings Jake out to attack Rick Rude. Uh, that's you know, and another expose of the wrestling business like you you this guy you're wrestling is supposedly so such a quality wrestler in the junkyard dog but you have time to like pull your pants down and you can pull them down like they're around your thighs so theoretically somebody could like trip you over and you topple over like a top and junkyard dog's really bad in this match i i you know patera was probably better in his match than junkyard dog was in this i mean this was really bad rude tried hard he i mean uh, I remember like the when Junkyard Dog winds up in WCW for the brief run with Flair, where you're basically bouncing off in a mobile object to try to get anything out of Junkyard Dog. That's what Rick Rude was reserved to having to do, and at this stage, that didn't go as well as they would have wished, I'm sure. But was this the last wrestle? Was this the last big match for Junkyard Dog? Uh, in the WWF, it was in the yes. WWF. Yeah, well, there's the only surprise to me is that it was a DQ finish. I thought figured Rude would put him over. Maybe that might have been better off. Maybe, uh, but Rude d- drops the pants and does the big knee. He pins Junkyard Dog, get up and do a suggestive dance or something, and then then Jake gets him from behind. Rude might have got a little more mileage out of that, but uh, if it got it over with five minutes faster, I'm down with that. <laughs> really, I mean, the, the match felt like a backdrop to the angle, and and Jake did the run in way too quick. It was like you know, it was like if this is in real life, it's like okay, I know what this guy's about to do, and I'm going to jump him after he does it. On to the powers of pain over Nikolai Volkov and Boris Zukov, another nothing match. And the only commentary I have here, first of all, people like casual wrestling fans that I knew thought that the, the WWF had obtained the Road Warriors. They thought the power of pain were the Road Warriors. But secondly, I think we all know the story. The power of powers of pain were supposed to go to every city and do a scaffold match against the Road Warriors. And every night, these two 300-plus-pound monsters are supposed to be falling off of a scaffold. And they're like, no way, and I can't blame them. And they wound up with the WWF. And my question for 35 years has always been, if the WWF wanted these guys, what were they doing in JCP beforehand? I think it was more or less they 
and this is just a guess on my part, I have nothing to back it up, but if you've quit your job at company number two, you're going to take whatever company number one offers because you need to stay employed. So maybe they got them on the cheap and figured if we can make people, if people without coming right out and saying it, if we can make people think they're the road warriors, they'll be even more valuable. Uh, I've always liked the Barbarian a lot, but if you took him out of this match, boy, you have a way, way past his prime, Nikolai Volkov. I'm not very good to begin with Boris Zukov, and the Warlord did a lot of the selling in this match, and that made it even worse. That's that's actually a good point. I mean, and Volkov and Zukov are kind of like a step down from Nikolai Volkov and Iron Sheik, so there's an, another right. negative. And, and and I'm not sure what the great idea was with Baron von Raschke at ringside. I know they he was the manager for a brief second, but what, I don't understand what the point was to just stand around with a hood over your head and do nothing. I mean, unless that was they were trying to, you know, how wrestling can be at that time, and there everybody's taking little subtle digs at the other one. Maybe that was a dig on Kevin Sullivan because he was underneath the cape and the hood, and you know, with his gimmick. But I. I don't see what Baron von Rasky added at all. Yeah, this was this was another snooze inducer. Other than the Barbarian, who always tries hard. No, the Barbarian was a talent, and I'll I'll be honest with you guys. I wa- I watched this show twice. The first time I watched the I watched it in its entirety, no fast forwarding. The second time I did do a little bit of fast forwarding, including this match. I didn't even notice Baron von Rasky. He's he's the John Tolos before his time. I, w- I would I would agree with that. And the other thing about this match was, if you notice when you watch it, Warlord and Barbarian come sprinting down the aisle and roll into the ring, very Road Warrior esque, which probably adds to it even more with the casual fan that they would think. Ah, Road yes, that's a, that's a, a good point. So now we have a brother love show with Hacksaw Jim Duggan and. The whole time they were hyping this card, they were saying that, you know, on the Brother Love show is someone who has never been to Madison Square Garden before. And the big surprise on the Brother Love show was Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who had been with the company minus his firing in 1987 for about 18 months. It was just a real head shaker. Uh, a whole bunch of things, combinations that I didn't like then and don't like now. I've never been the biggest Hacksaw Jim Duggan fan. I, I'll be the first to admit that is like, and then to have him on Brother Love, who is your job as a heel was to be annoying, but not so annoying that you take the okay, this is my refrigerator break, this is where I hit the mute button, and Brother Love was just so annoying that you didn't watch to hate him, you watched to get away from him. And Jim Duggan in that type of situation probably wasn't the kind of guy that was going to verbally joust with brother love. And it just came off like, boy, what a disappointment when you're expecting somebody else. If you're uh, from from what the way they promoted it, they could have left this off in, in its entirety and nobody would have missed it. I don't have the details. It's been 35 years and I've never gotten the details, but they th- it was supposed to be Ric Flair. Right, that's that the story that I've always heard, and, and if you couldn't get Ric Flair, and that was your original plan, you might have been better off just moving right along, with, you know, coming up with some kind of excuse to save the satellite time. 
Yeah, get someone from the Mets or the Yankees, anything. <laughs> get somebody to show up at the yeah. Get somebody to show up locally that you can play as local wrestling. Well, you know what? Now that I'm thinking of it, what really would have made sense if you were that desperate because you didn't get flair. If you listen to the show real carefully, they are promoting the Sugar Ray Leonard Donnie Lalonde fight because Vince promoted that. And you'll hear Monsoon allude to that like two or three times over the course of the card. Why didn't they get one of those guys to promote that card? And they could have done the segment with Brother Love. I mean, it, it wouldn't have been any better, but it might have been something they could have done to keep it shorter. Good point. I mean, number one, I liked, I loved Duggan when he was in Mid-South Wrestling, when he was in uh, Bill Watts, UWF. Loved the guy. And when I heard that he was coming to the WWF, I was like, you know, I don't think he's going to be as big as Hogan. Of course not. But he could easily be their number two babyface by a long shot. And as soon as the, he got there, they they cartoonized him so much. I think by this point in 1988, he might have been my least favorite wrestler. I, I think he was. And that's saying a lot because I watched all of the wrestling. But, I mean, number two, you mentioned the Leonard Lalonde fight. They cut a lot of the SummerSlam promotion of that out of the Peacock feed. There was like mm-hmm. another 15 or 20 minutes of Leonard Lalonde hype that was on the original broadcast that wasn't on Peacock, and a lot of people were steamed about that. They're like, look, I didn't pay you know, 1995 or 2495 to watch a commercial for a boxing match. Uh, every time Vince has tried to stretch into that other audience, you hear that argument, and the wrestling audience is a unique audience and a lot of it doesn't cross over and a box. You know, well, John, you and I are roughly the same age. And, and when we were in the seventies in elementary school in the early eighties, boxing was much huger than it is now. A lot of that audience crossed over, but as McMahon's wrestling became more cartoonized and more centralized nationally, instead of the regional thing, a lot of the fans that liked both kind of disappeared. And I think that's where a lot of the griping came from. Cause you're right. It, you're, you were running a commercial for a product that a large chunk of your audience could care less about. It would be like right now, if you are going to buy a wrestling pay-per-view and you're going to have a commercial for uh, premier league soccer. Well, a large chunk of that audience says, I don't care about this. Why are you shoving this on me? And I think it had a little bit of that, although the difference was is Sugar Ray Leonard then was arguably the biggest star. He's clearly the biggest star in boxing and maybe one of the bigger stars in the world because this is young Mike Tyson, not quite to the heavyweight title limit yet. He's just starting to be a title contender, so he's not the star that he would be shortly. And so most of the people that were watching that at least knew who Sugar Ray Leonard was, although not many probably knew who Donnie Lalonde was. But yeah, if you're not a if you're not a fan of both sports, it probably did have a feel to it of man, this is why am I watching this? I'm going through my Rolodex of sports stars in 1988. The only bigger stars in sports that that might have been bigger that were still active were. Joe Montana might have been a bigger name. Magic Johnson probably was a bird, probably was right up there. That's, that's what a big deal Sugar Ray Leonard was. And Michael Jordan wasn't quite Michael Jordan yet. Right, right. And, you know, and, and worldwide, Ray Leonard probably was above all those guys. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that was a huge get to just have him, period. And maybe they wanted to make sure that what they were paying for would come through. And, you know, it, it's all, like I said, it's always a risk when you're trying to cross feed an audience something that they may or may not like. Like, remember how, John, how everyone assumed that the Southern wrestling audience would always be the country music and the NASCAR crowd, but yet every time they tried that crossover with WCW, it was always a disappointment. And, and kind of has it that feel to it. It was always a bomb. Yeah, because you, you can't assume, it's a stereotype to assume that that audience likes all of those things. And that's why it usually and- doesn't work out. And it, it gets worse when you're, instead of, okay, we promote in Atlanta, we promote in Charlotte, we promote in Birmingham, now you're promoting in Philadelphia, and I've told the story on the show when, you know, they brought the country acts out to the, uh, uh, whatever stadium it was, veteran stadium in Philadelphia, I mean, the crowds, you know, were angry that they were having to listen to this country music instead of getting the wrestling that they wanted, but backing up a little bit, like I said, I don't know the details, as far as why they thought they were getting Ric Flair, but they thought Ric Flair was going to be uh, the that guy at at uh, on the Brother Love show. I mean, I was half, you know, wait. I was I was waiting for Ric Flair to come out, quite frankly, and I was a little bit surprised, but very surprised when we got Duggan. All right, now we've got the Ultimate Warrior defeating the Honky Tonk Man. Ultimate Warrior was the surprise opponent, and he wins the match in 31 seconds. Sean, I was told maybe six weeks before the show uh, happened, like, you know, we all learned that, okay, we've got this SummerSlam thing coming up. And I had a friend who was pretty well connected in the in wrestling. And I want to back, back up by saying the WWF was really, usually really good about keeping stuff in-house. They didn't have stuff leaked to the newsletters or leaked to outside people like me. And this person, who I haven't spoken to, God, well over 30 years, told me that, oh, yeah, at this show, the Ultimate Warrior is going to beat Honky Tonk Man for the Intercontinental Championship. And this is before, this was before the show was announced. And then they say, oh, yeah, you know, the show is Honky Tonk against Brutus Beefcake. And I'm like, well, I guess that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Bang. Yes, he did. I, I Again, full disclosure. Wayne Ferris was far from the greatest wrestler in the world. And I normally, a lot of the WWF stuff at that time, the gimmicks and stuff didn't do much for me, but I found the honky tonk man hilarious. Now, once the, once the match started, it wasn't always so wonderful, but the interviews and the build up and the ring entrance and all, I found the honky tonk man just beyond belief as far as funny people hated that guy's guts to this day i'll have people talk about wrestling man i hated that guy boy what a guy that honky talk man but once the match started it it was nothing necessarily memorable but and then with a guy like ultimate warrior that had the potential to be really bad if you stretched it so whoever came up with the idea to make it so fast was that that's exactly how you could have you should have done it uh, that just was have him go and just finish. blow him away. The perfect and with finish. The, yes, with the longest intercontinental reign that people had been begging for this guy to lose, and they've seen the, the Savages and the Jake Roberts and all these guys have tried to beat him, and he's the longest reigning champion, and here comes this guy out of nowhere and just blitzes him. That was 
perfectly done. For all the things you can criticize him for on this card, that's not one of them. That was extremely well done. And, and give Wayne Ferris credit, too, because he said everything perfect. I'll face anybody. I'll take on anybody. And then he flops around like a fish, and you know, and it was, kudos to everybody. They, they made the Ultimate Warrior look like a dynamo. Yeah, and like you know, yeah, it was it was the perfect finish. And you know, instead of having these guys go out even for ten minutes, even for five minutes, go for the Mike Tyson punch out and just put Ultimate Warrior over as what he turned out to be the next big thing. Right. I mean, and and that's how you set it up. That's how. I mean, I give them a complete thumbs up in the Cisco and Ebert verse. If you couldn't have done that any better because if you would have tried to make it even five minutes, Warrior would have blown up. If you watch even just at the end, before he does that splash, he's like on the ropes and sucking for air a little bit because he's been bouncing and running. And I think that had they tried to get five minutes out of it, it might not have been a very good ending at least. No, they would have exposed Ultimate Warrior, and instead, like I said, they just put him over as the Mike, as the new Mike Tyson. Now, here's a, another reason why you should join the Facebook group. I posted this earlier this week. Uh, we were talking about Brutus Beefcake or whoever. This is this is a true story. Wayne Ferris was supposed to be Brutus Beefcake. That was supposed to be his gimmick that they were going to give him in 1984, and he had hepatitis, I believe, and Hulk Hogan recommended his high school buddy, uh, Brutus Beefcake, whatever his real name is. Oh, gosh, I'm just thinking about that. I don't think, they see, now that's, sometimes you have a perfect guy for for a role. I I can't imagine Wayne Ferris as Brutus Beefcake. Can you imagine, imagine, remember when they brought Brutus in at first, and he's like uh, going to these nightclubs, and he's dancing to Scandals, the Warrior, and I, just thinking of those vignettes and thinking of Wayne Ferris in that outfit in that environment is like, ah, that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> I, I mean, my original, the original Brutus Beefcake thing was he didn't talk. And finally, after a few months, they're like, can you, can you please say a couple of words? He goes, Brutus Beefcake. Johnny Valley did all the talking for him, but Brutus Beefcake, I'll give him credit. When they turned him at WrestleMania 3, I was like, there is no way this guy's going to work out his baby face. No way. And he made it work. So I give him credit. He got a lot more out of mileage out of that than you, than probably you and me and everybody else thought they would. So yes, he did. For a short period of time, he was, he was very over with the audience. He, he definitely was up up until his accident in 1990. Now let's talk some real old school wrestling here. This was not on Peacock, but they had like a 15 minute intermission on the pay per view. Can you even imagine something like that today? Uh no, no, because that would be considered dead time. And and I, I didn't see that, but now that you say that, I do remember. And they actually have like the clock winding down on the screen and the graphics. Yes. Yeah, and it's yeah. like. Yeah, that's dead air, dead time. I, I can't imagine anything like that today. You know, but it's the only way. Sometimes you just get stuck in a habit. Like, you know, we do it this way because we've always done it that way, this way. And pay-per-view was new. And Madison Square Garden, you know, at their wrestling shows, going back, you know, decades, they always had an intermission in the middle of the car. And that's just the way it was done. Exactly. They, they, it was a new horizon. And they were learning on the fly on everything. And 
you know, wrestling shows and all. You, know, you go to an independent show, it's still done like that this day. You'll have an intermission in between to sell popcorn or, or ham sandwiches or a Polaroid or whatever you're uh, selling to your audience. And back then, it, nobody had thought of a different way of, hey, you know what? This is, even if you just do mean Gene Okerlund promos, is a better use of time than a screen of the arena with a clock. <laughs> The last WWE show I went to did have an intermission, and you're right. It, it's to boost concession sta- sales, but that event wasn't televised. It's a totally right. different animal. But yep. anyway, like I said, old habits sometimes die hard. Speaking of dying hard, Dino Bravo versus Don oh. Morocco. I I mean, Morocco. This painful. I, I'm like you, you. know, I was a big fan of Ken Patera. I was a big fan of Don Morocco. And another guy who's about to leave the company, um, not on, not on his own volition, but he was leaving. And I mean, just a really bad match. And, and Morocco just was not what he once was. This was painful for me because, you know, Don Morocco, I've wrote it, written in my blog before that he was my high school or junior high school role model. <laughs> and, and that was literally killing me watching this because this was not the guy that I loved so much. This was, and they, and and this match is even worse because when he comes to the ring back then, it was the superstar Billy Graham music where they play Jesus Christ superstar. And so it's the WWF sanitized dub version, which makes this even worse watching him walk down the aisle to it. And this is the, term mailed in mailed it in sounds pretty close you can tell that morocco is not in the mood to put anything for more he's not putting out any more effort than he has to to get his paycheck at this point and it's not like dino bravo was going to get it out of him and it, it, this was really sad a lot of the audience a lot of the wwf audience in the early 80s they related to Pedro Morales. Pedro looked like the guy who put on his nice suit, his good shoes, and went to church every Sunday. And Morocco was one of us when I was in high school. That's that, and that's why we embraced him. Absolutely. And when, when they didn't have the term "smart fans" back then, but you know, you had a small, very small number of people. You know, like say teenagers and up that rooted for the bad guys and he was the hero he was he uh, i watched that like he was the guy that he said what he wanted he did what he wanted and he looked good but he didn't look so good that it was unrealistic like you said that you could you could arguably meet a a guy like don morocco in real life and yet he would come off as a star and at this time he's really bulky he's his arms he looks almost bloated it looks like He's in the gym, yes. but yet the gym's not helping him any. He looks bloated. He's not fat. He's not, like, obnoxiously fat, but it's like he looks like someone literally pumped him up with, like, an air hose. That it doesn't look right, for lack of a better term. And it was it was kind well, of a sad that ending. That was the WWF look back in 1988. Well, uh, he, he bulked up. To the point of, it was the WWF look at the time, but because he was getting to be an older guy compared to the other people that were bulking up, it just didn't look right. He was in the gym, but yet he was 
bigger, but it he wasn't fat, but he had a larger look to him. And it just in a company that is going for the bodybuilder look, he wasn't really in either camp. He wasn't a bodybuilder, but you couldn't push him as more of a uh, non-body guy. And he just didn't have a niche at this point. Yeah, he had that Michelin Man look, and we all kind of know where that Michelin Man look comes from. I, I never got Dino Bravo or his push. I mean, and he was he was going to get a huge push in 89 and 90, and it's kind of just starting here. But, I mean, you know, he's just this guy who has this – he's getting older. He looks weird with that hair. He has a weird body. I don't get the whole uh, Frenchie Martin with the sign, USA is not okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Then or now, it's like you're going to push him as an anti-American heel from Quebec. Yeah. (laughs) And and like you said, he was getting older, and he kind of similar to Morocco. He had a big look, but it wasn't a flattering big look. And then then eventually they push him as the strongest man, and he didn't even have a strongest man look to him. It's like I – only assume that someone liked Dino Bravo in the front office at that particular time, because that's the only thing I can think of. I never quite got Dino Bravo. No, I, I mean, I, I was a fan of his in the seventies and early eighties, but this is a completely di- different Dino Bravo, barely recognizable from that guy who was WWF tag team champions, Bobby. And one other thing too, we haven't mentioned superstar Billy Graham on commentary. He's as bad as some of these oh matches. My gosh, I, 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 yeah, I was waiting for that to come up. He, this, when when I turned on turned the event on on Peacock, and I thought, oh my god, this is the superstar Billy Graham. I knew it was going to seem like it lasted twice as long as it did. I, I loved. I f- consider myself a Billy Graham fan. Thought he was. It's just this is an example of being a good promo guy and a good talker in the wrestling business doesn't mean that you're a good announcer candidate. I mean, he said more. If we should have had the brother drinking game, he said brother more than Hulk Hogan has in his whole career. It <laughs> was just painful to listen to this. It was he was terrible. I mean, just awful. Well, and during this match, Bobby Heenan, or before the match, Bobby Heenan joins the commentary team, and my immediate reaction was, okay, did they just call an audible? Did they they just figure out that, okay, this announcing team is terrible, let's get Bobby Heenan out there to help out? But then they brought him back, not for SummerSlam, not for pay-per-views, but for arena shows, like the the shows in Boston, the shows in Madison Square Garden, etc., so... I, I'm guessing they they didn't call an audible if they kept using him. Yeah, I that's still him. I guess maybe he had a short term contract and they were going to get every bit of use out of him they could because man, he was bad. I mean, and the WWF has had a lot of bad announcers through the years. I don't know if they've ever had one that bad. That they not not just necessarily somebody that came behind because. You know, John, you would used to watch the primetime wrestling stuff, and sometimes you'd see some really weird people show up and do commentary, like Pete Doherty or, or you know, but somebody that they gave an extended opportunity to. I don't know if they've ever had a worse color commentator than Superstar Billy Graham. Uh, you know, as you were saying, they've never had anyone worse than, than, than Superstar Billy Graham. I'm like, okay, Sean has never heard Pete Doherty. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean – 
you know, keep, keep in mind, I did say extended opportunity. <laughs> yeah. no, you, you qualified it. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, next match, Demolition Axe and Smash defeats the Heart Foundation. Uh, let me see when Smash pins Heart. Uh, it was a decent match. Uh, it should have been better, though. I, and in my opinion, the Heart should have gone over in this match. Best match on the card. But again, you have to consider the company you keep. It's no different than when you're when you were out dating and you're in the club. And if you're a young lady, you wanted to be the six in a field of eights, or you or sorry, you wanted to be a six in a field of three. You didn't want to be the six hanging around with nines. You want to stand out. And in this card, it stood out that this was the best match on the card. But yet, you're right. It did leave you a little lacking that you thought this should be better. Because Bret Hart's obviously in it. Jim Neidhart does what he does. You know, Barry Darso is fine, and Bill Eady is always really good, although he's clear he's on the downside at this point. When you if sometimes you know, you would think it would have been better than it was. That it's like putting a whole bunch of ingredients in a pot and sometimes it sounds great, but it doesn't really turn out. And no, that's, that's kinda not, how I thought. That's a good way of putting it. Um I thought the best match on the show was the main event. Uh, I thought this was a decent match, and it probably stood out uh, from the rest of the matches. Like you said, a, a six and a, and a bar full of, eight, of threes. <laughs> it's always nice to be the six. It, it, it's being above your the people around you. That that was the key. If this would have been on a really good show, it would have been ah eh, man. It was it was okay. It probably gets a little more attention on on a show that was filled with bad matches. Next matchup, Big Boss Man pins Coco Ware in six minutes. I remember watching this show live and, you know, watching it with my friends and being just, this thing is really starting to drag. It was not a bad match, uh, but it was kind of a squash match. You know, we all knew that, you know, Big Boss Man was certainly going over Coco Beware. JCP really blew it with Ray Trailer, in my opinion. I thought Big Bubba Rogers... I'm probably in the minority when I say this. I'm probably I might be just one of a few people who say this. I thought uh, Big Bubba Rogers had main event potential, and they just didn't use it. And Vince sees this three huge, three hundred and fifty pound guy who can actually work, and he says, "You know what? I could use him. How about I give him a call?" And WWF made the most of it. You are not the only person that says that because I've always thought the same thing. And when Dusty was beating him on TV, I thought, you know, it was like, why are you doing this? This makes, he has top of the card potential and you are throwing all of that away. And if at the very end of his run there, before he moved there, they kind of redid the angle where Dusty hits him with a chair and he no, no sells it. It was on one of those. 10,000 shows like the fringy ones. It might have been CWF or whatever, the La Florida feed. He does the same thing where they Dusty hits you with a chair and he no-sells it, like trying to get some of that back. Uh, yeah, I, I think they missed the boat there. I, I think – I don't know if you could have ever stuck him with a guy like, you know, a, a babyface flair, but he certainly could have done – they could have done so much more with him. And you could tell from JCP he was still learning. He was still – that he had athletic ability – he was very nimble for such a big man. He was able to do things that men of that size generally couldn't. 
and he was kind of being wasted there. They, you know, I and McMahon said clearly this is a big guy that we could do things with. Perfect for Hulk Hogan. He's he, close to him in size, but he'll be able to do things for Hulk that King Kong Bundy's not. Like like getting suplexed off the top of a cage. Yeah, on a Saturday things, night things like that. Yeah, th- athletic things instead of just like falling into a corner. Yeah, I mean, we were all, look, by 1986, when Big Bubba was in JCP and, and Dusty hits him with a chair, Big Bubba Rogers was over with me to the point where, I mean, look, we're all, you know, by that point, I have my own booking ideas, even though I'm not smart to the business. You know, when Dusty won the NWA title, I, I think it was, I think it was either late July or early August 1986. In my head, I'm like, okay, Dusty Rhodes versus Big Bubba Rogers, Starcade 86 main event. That's how over the guy was with me. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and I, Maybe, maybe this is the quote unquote mark in me is that I look at say, why did Dusty have to beat him in Pittsburgh? They drew the supposedly the biggest house Pittsburgh has ever had for that match. Why did they have to have him lose there? Wouldn't it, they might have gotten more mileage out of the bunkhouse stampede over the long haul if Bubba had won that first one? Albeit, you know, you can put whatever controversy you want into it. But once Dusty won that, you knew every time they were going to have the thing, he was going to wind up winning it. And I, I just I had always thought of what if they could have came up with some kind of way that Dusty didn't have to completely look bad, but yet Bubba wound up winning that thing with a guy like Cornette as the mouthpiece forever. It would be bunkhouse stampede champion, big Bubba Rogers. And that lends more credence to the quality of your event that you're just starting from scratch. You know, you mentioned, too, that Big Bubba, Ray Trailer, you know, he was a big guy with some athleticism who was still learning. And one other thing, guess who he's traveling with? Jim Cornette, Bobby Eaton, and Dennis Condry. I mean, what better classroom than being in a car with those three guys? Every night you're learning. And, and I can only imagine, because once he left the Big Boss Man character, he kind of went downhill as far as, you know, with the whole WCW, the boss and all that. I, I often wonder, had he stayed, he probably eventually would have got the same run with Hogan. Probably would have, it was going to be successful no matter what. Maybe he would have been, he would have had more longevity if he would have learned some more things from guys that were, like you said, clearly, and you're getting a classroom every night. I'll, I'll never forget Tony Schiavone when he came in as the boss, right? And basically same gimmick as the WWF. And Tony Schiavone's like, wow, that's a big boss, man. <laughs> so bad, I loved it. But anyway, Jake Roberts defeats Hercules Hernandez in the longest 10 minutes of, and 6 seconds of my life. It's just another nothing match. And there, so much of this card was filler. And you would think... They would try to get a little bit creative, putting together something that would interest people. And really, the second half of this card felt like they were just killing time until they finally got to the main event. I guess my question is, you know, I, I maybe the answer is so so that people feel like they're getting their money's worth. But there was really no reason for this show to be three hours long. Absolutely not. And and Hercules Hernandez in the WWF period was kind of like a disappointment to me. 
that you watch him in mid south and even world class to a degree and you thought they he would be a bigger deal than he was and i he was always a strong guy and had a good body but i you know he kind of felt he always reminded me of a guy that really desperately needed a tan I, he just came off almost pale and in a company filled with muscular tanned guys he stood out and he didn't stand out in a good way and once he started losing he started losing a lot yeah yeah i i, I am with you when i saw hercules hernandez in mid-south i mean he looked like a guy who had a huge future in front of him and he did well obviously he got to the wwf you know but he never had that big run against hulk hogan and i think when they started calling him just hercules and and gave him you know put hercules looking stuff on him as opposed to just letting him be hercules hernandez i think that took something off of the guy and, and- and, and I'll, I'll defer to your judgment on this, but let me ask you a question. I always thought when they br- first brought Hercules Hernandez in, he almost adopted a lot of the characteristics of a heel Jim Duggan. And then when he when then all of a sudden they had Jim Duggan, so they had to sanitize him a little bit because to take some of those things away, and he never really recovered from that as far as his personality goes. You're right. Both Hernandez and Duggan borrowed a lot from Bruiser Brody. And you're right. Once Duggan came in, he had to stop doing a lot of the stuff that he was doing, like the foot stomping and all that. Maybe that took something off of him. All right. We've got the main event. Uh, And here, first of all, they do a recap of why this match is happening. And I think that was really smart. Because I am certain there were a lot of super casual fans watching this, okay? Oh, we're, you know, someone's going to this SummerSlam party. Well, I'll go, even though I don't watch wrestling. And that you're telling that person, okay, why is Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage fighting Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase? And why Jesse Ventura being the referee matters? You know, pay-per-view is still a new toy, and it seems so obvious now to do that today, but it wasn't as obvious in 1988. And, and, and I would go further and say, and I have absolutely no reason to, to state this, just a feeling. I think more casual fans bought wrestling events back then than they do now because pay-per-view was young. And like you said earlier in the show, it was special. It was different to bring your family over and everybody get together and do all that, and by adding that recap to the person that gen- – compare it to, like, everyone knows a lady that doesn't watch football but loves going to Super Bowl parties. I think they had a large contingent of that type of person that maybe they didn't watch wrestling, but they liked getting together and doing the party thing, and therefore they're watching it. So you gave them a quick recap of why you should care about this match. Well put. You you – Put together what I wanted to put together. That, yeah, sometimes you just have that person who, you know, we're having a party where we're watching football. Okay, I'll go. No, I mean, and I think by, like you said, by doing that recap, you explain the story, why you should care, this is what's going on. And they said, huh, well, so and so, I'll pay a little more attention now. And uh, to me, that was, that was well done for them. You would think, 35 years in hindsight that it's a layup, but at that time it wasn't a layup. 
because a couple years later, they would no. be doing that type of stuff for every match on the card. Yeah, I mean, they were definitely in uncharted water in 1988. I mean, this is only the WWF, I want to say, fourth or fifth pay-per-view, and they're, they're still trying to figure it out. But main event, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage defeat Andre the Giant and Ted DBC. They did an excellent job building this thing up, especially with Jesse Ventura as the special guest referee. I liked it. They made this I match really special. It. I, I liked the match. I didn't love the match, but but at the same time, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. I didn't. I thought the ending was kind of hokey, but oh, you know that's, that's what they were. That's what they were. They were hokey. That's exactly what they were. That's what they were going for. But even th- even then, you you watch the ending of it and you say, "Oh man, this is kind of cheesy, isn't it?" Uh, like you'd think that. Ted DiBiase and Jesse Ventura had never been with a woman before. They're they're looking they at Elizabeth like like they they look like the geek you knew in high school that had you know oh wow she's really pretty and like <laughs> they they made them look absolutely stupid with standing there slack jawed over somebody that's that kept her blouse on is just basically a uh, swimsuit bottom I I, I thought that was kind of hokey. But that's, you know, that's, that's just what they, that they were hokey. That's what they were. I mean, how many animals were at during on, on this car, <laughs> you know, birds and dogs and snakes. And you could see, you could have seen fewer going to a dime store zoo. I mean, here's, here's straight from my notes. Okay. DiBiase and Ventura apparently have never seen a, an attractive woman in a bikini in a bikini bottom. Have they never been to a pool or a beach? That's right straight from my notes. And it was as hokey then as it is now. It, you know, like I said, it was like it was nothing more than you know something. You know, she was wearing a lot more than someone would be wearing at the beach. It was crazy. Yes, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't have really bought that reaction if she would have just been wearing a one piece. Period, and she didn't even take her like uh, the, the top off. It was like the bottom of a one piece, and they're literally looking at her like they've never seen a woman in their life. It, it, it just came off so ridiculous. Now, the saving grace in all of this bad comedy is Andre the Giant. Utilize is trying to get Ted DiBiase and Jesse Ventura to get their attention. Hey, we're in the middle of a wrestling match. He just did not care about Elizabeth. I thought that part was great. Yeah, imagine this. You have this guy who's who they advertise at seven four, five hundred pounds. This is the guy who doesn't get turned on by the woman. Yeah, really. The, the, the guy who would probably crush Elizabeth in intercourse. This is the guy who's not interested. Where Jesse Ventura, who spent his whole career talking about his muscles and his Hollywood career, and Ted Tibiasi, they have never seen a woman before. This is a turn-on to these 35-year-old men. But Andre the Giant is experienced enough with ladies to <laughs> ignore this and concentrate on the match. Uh, supposedly, Andre got more than his share on the road. I'm not oh, sure, I'm about sure he did. Andre. I'm sure he did. I have no doubt in my mind on that. So that's not a knock to on Andre by any means. But like, no, you I know what you're this, saying. You go. This is the guy, the one guy in the match that you would expect to stand there going, oh, that's the that would have been the guy that you would expect. 
And then meanwhile, he's the guy concentrating on the match. The other two guys, you know, act like they're like third graders with their teachers showed a little bit of extra leg. <laughs> Jesse Ventura, who has done movies in Hollywood, who <laughs> did commentary with El- Elvira, the mistress of the dark in, at the WrestleMania 86. But he's, he's the one who's, whose head is spinning over Elizabeth. It makes no sense. My major complaint with this match is that Randy Savage looked so friggin' weak. I mean, I get that in the Batman and Robin tandem of the Mega Powers, he's Robin. But my God, I, I mean, he... It was ridiculous how much he was made to sell and how much Hulk Hogan was uh, made out to be, you know, the, the superhero in, in all of this. They made Randy Savage look like the Aquaman and Super Friends. <laughs> yes. He was clearly the weakest link, and they were going to show him as such. And, well, you, yeah, look, you weren't going to get Hulk Hogan to do a whole lot other than what he normally did. And, and, I think it actually kind of it kind of hurt Randy Savage a little bit. I I thought, and it hurt it hurt the match because he was the guy that was doing everything. He was the guy getting crunched. He was the guy taking all the bumps. And I would agree that took away from. But but I'm going to give them a plus here. And uh, I think for what she did, Miss Elizabeth was tremendous. There was very there's very few people that when they photographed her properly she had a look that emoted empathy emoted concern and you can't fake that she came across as legitimately caring for her man or men she came across that she was this nice lady who just happened to somehow get dumped in this crazy business and she cared about her guy and it came across legitimately to the audience because everyone man or woman knows somebody that would do that cared so much about their person that they would do anything for them and they're getting the hell kicked out of them and she came across in that role so well and that you can't teach that she had it and it she never got it back at wcw and but up until the bathing suit thing, she might have been my star of the match because every time they put the camera on her, you felt what she was feeling, looking at as a manager, et cetera. I thought she was the underrated performer of this match until the bathing suit thing. Now, Sean, as soon as this event ended, okay, I well, when the show was ending, when the uh, Hulk was about to go into his posing, and he picks up Elizabeth and you know, kind of twirling her around, whatever. And I kind of noticed that Randy Savage gave him a look, and I was like, "Wait a minute, is this an accident?" And then when the event ended, I I pressed stop on my VCR, I rewound the tape a little bit, and I caught that look again. And I was like, that is that did not happen by accident. We something's going on. I think they're going to split these guys up soon. And for once, I was right. The seed has been planted. Dun, dun, dun. There's your cliffhanger. <laughs> and, and, and Savage, he, that came across. That came across very well. And it, it comes across well for Hogan afterwards because he can say, look, me, look, I'm not doing anything wrong. I just was celebrating and lifting her. And, you know, it, it that was very well done because Randy Savage for whatever 
he had that look of like the jealous boyfriend, maybe because it was real, uh, down to a T. And that's mm-hmm. why that it just felt legitimate. It did. And like I said, I, I, at the first, at first, it kind of, you know, kind of caught it a little bit. I'm like, what did I just see? And then as soon as the credits started rolling, I was like, okay, I got to see this again. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, something's going on here unless that's a shoot look, but it's not going to be because they're not going to have, you know, Hogan, uh, calling an audible, you know, picking up Elizabeth and twirling her around. Probably not. I mean, probably planned. But it just looked so good that you at least could question that it was planned or not. Yeah. And again, planting the little seed, it was subtle enough. I liked what they did. Sean, as as you had mentioned coming in, this was not a good show. Not only did I feel that, it, you know, at coming in, I didn't feel like the whole thing was special enough to be a pay-per-view. Um, and on top of everything, it just wasn't a good show. There were no matches that I would call really good i thought the main event was okay i thought the heart foundation match was okay and that's about it and there were some stinkers in there as well i i thought the intercontinental championship was fine but I, you can't call it a good match right it was well done because it was so short but far from a good match i i mean and it was kind of like a changing of the guard you could like you had said earlier they were beginning to uh separate the wheat from the chaff where the the guys that had one time been stars were starting to get their releases, and it was going to be on to the next wave. And it was, what, it was the end of Patera, Morocco, Junkyard Dog. All those guys were gone after this, and it was the beginning of the next wave of people being brought in to be pushed as stars. I'm not sure if Morocco was originally going to be part of that, you know, getting rid of, I, the story I heard 35 years ago was they went on a tour of Europe and he and Nick Bockwinkle, who was the road agent, got into it over something. And, and when Morocco got home, Vince fired him. He's like, Hey, you can't be treating our road agents like that. Ian, I do seem to remember Morocco saying something like that, uh, somewhere that I remember hearing him say that. And, and that probably is the case. But may, maybe they already were maybe yeah. watching his performance against Dino Bravo had him on thin ice as it was. That, that's a real possibility. Sean, thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling. You, as, as always, you've been an excellent guest. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me. Uh, thanks again, Lou. We appreciate uh, your oper- you, the opportunity to work with you as well. All right. I want to thank, first of all, Brian Lass for giving me this forum, this opportunity. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does uh, putting this podcast together and you know, being flexible with the schedules, which sometimes is not easy. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I hope I hope no one hates this show like some people hated last week's show. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols! Beat Virginia! This concludes our podcast day.